Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I had the honor of speaking with Davidson Day parent Ted Flinter. Ted, a New York native, has traveled extensively around the world during his time with the United States Marine Corps as a graduate student at Harvard University and a staff member of the United Nations. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ted. So, Ted, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. And just to kick us off, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Long Island, New York, just outside of New York City, maybe 30 minutes. Upper middle class, pretty comfortable, vacations, great public school system. We attended kind of the 1970s too. So it was before social media and the most advanced electronics we had. I think we had Pong and Atari. So it was a good time. It was a good time. I remember uh, we got an Apple IIe in the late 80s, and uh, I just thought we were able to print off stuff, and it was like, this is just amazing. And there was some sort of primitive basketball game that I could play on it, and I just thought, wow, I don't think anything gets better than this. And, and so what are your fondest memories of school, and what were some of your challenges when you grew up? I think my fondest – I was very fortunate in that I went to the same school system from the time I was in kindergarten until I graduated high school. So we knew all the other kids. Occasionally, we'd have new folks come in. But that's probably great just to have the bonds. I still speak to people that I went to kindergarten with, which is nice. And I juxtapose that against my kids' experience who were born overseas and have, have moved around a bit. It was good. I thoroughly enjoyed music growing up. I played sports, but I was in a jazz band and a rock band. And I just have great memories of performing with at the school or parties or, or whatnot. It was great. And we have a very similar experience with with our kids. I grew up in the same, you know, went to the same school district my whole life. And whereas, you know, my kids, they're in an international relationship. Like, you know, one parent's from one country, one's in the other. I grew up in a different country to them. It's just my upbringing is just so different to their upbringing. And growing up, who or what influenced you most to help shape you into the person that you are today? It's interesting. I would say my, my mother and father in, in equal parts. When I grew up, again, reflecting back, we had a black and white TV upstairs and a 25-inch Sony Trinitron downstairs, and I pretty much watched whatever my father was watching or my mother. And so you were able to wield a great deal of influence as a parent on your child because there just weren't that many options, whereas I think today parents will find six different people in the house can be on six different devices and... I say jokingly because I was in the Marine Corps. My parents were great at indoctrinating me. At 18, I left. I explored the world. I have a completely different worldview and maybe political sense than they do, but the foundation was there. And the foundation, I think, primarily is just invest your time and energy in your kids. Yeah, it's a great thing to say. Uh, it's it's so interesting that you say that because that's something that my wife and I try and do as well. So the next one that we have is sort of moving into sort of your journey that sort of led you to, you know, like Norman and Davidson Day, but it's just such a fascinating story. And so what led you to attend Duke for college? I was the youngest. My older brother went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis and he served okay. as, as a Marine as well. My sister, who is an Irish twin, she's 
just a little more than 11 months older than me, uh, went to Duke University. So I knew that I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. I knew that I wanted to go into the military. I had a scholarship to Duke, which is ROTC. It's a Navy ROTC, Mm -hmm. but that's the pipeline for Marines. And then I also had the Naval Gate. So I had two great options, and I decided that I wanted to go to a civilian liberal arts college just because it was a greater way of kind of breaking out of where I had come from, right? A kind of my pod. So I just felt the going to a, a liberal arts college that wasn't military was a better option, especially if the government was going to pay for it anyway. Yeah. You spent a decade after graduation from Duke as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. What led you to serve as a Marine? So I wanted to be a Marine from the time I was a kid. I guess my brother did. And my parents never forced it. But my grandfather went to Paris Island, which is the Marine Corps recruit depot in in South Carolina. He went there in 1916 and served in World War I as a Marine. My uncles served in the Marine Corps in World War II. They were a little older. My father was the youngest child. So they served. And my uncle Joe landed at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, where I later. And so, you know, I grew up having a great deal of respect. At that time, I grew up watching the John Wayne movies. I grew up watching. So there's a bit of kind of the ideology and, and that goes in, but I always wanted to serve as a Marine. We were always kind of grew up. They're the toughest. They're the best. They're the hardest. So that led me there. Thank you for your service to our country. Like what does service mean to you? It's interesting. We're fortunate in the United States that we have an all volunteer military. It's interesting when you, you think about the greatest generation and so many Americans served in world war two and, and clearly there was a sense, I believe, of cohesion and common purpose that that was, you know, the baby boomers, or at least not the baby boomers, but the generation that came back mm-hmm. from that. There was a lot more fallout from that, or I should say, f- calling on with civil society, right? You had the veterans of foreign wars, you had the American Legion. Service for me is important. And for me, it manifested itself in serving in the Marine Corps service to country to me is more about genuinely desiring to see the United States advance, having empathy across all different. So if somebody wants to serve in AmeriCorps and they want to go work for Habitat for Humanity, Mm -hmm. a great deal of respect for that. I said, there's a much smaller segment of the population that has served in the military. And I'm again, it's kind of a blessing for the United States. As an officer in various units, you often focus on training programs for complex military situations like global crises or counterterrorism. What brought you to that type of high-stress, high-impact work? Well, in general, the Marine Corps is a pretty small service compared to the other services. And up until recently, certainly when I was serving, there wasn't a special forces or special forces component. So the Marine Corps had a training and just about everybody went through the same training. As an officer of Marines, once that happens, you kind of find your way through your career. And there were people who had their careers thought out. I just kind of jumped. If I saw something that looked interesting and there was an opportunity, I'd volunteer. So there was no plan. There was no great kind of vision of where I was going to go. I I was serving in California, made 
couple of deployments overseas. When I came back, there was an opportunity to work with a counterterrorism force based in Crete, Greece. I'm 24 years old at the time. Why not, right? At 24, I was contemplating going to grad school and was going to leave the Marine Corps after Greece and was offered a command position in Hawaii. Again, 27, no brainer. Let me go to Hawaii, (laughs) right? So I then subsequently, and I think this is one of the questions that we were thinking about, at that point, I applied to graduate school and got accepted to Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. My career counselor in the Marine Corps said, no, you're going to go to amphibious warfare school. So I resigned, we are commissioned, I resigned my commission and went to the Kennedy School on my own dime. Mm-hmm. And then immediately upon graduation, I went back into the Marine Corps and, and was assigned at the Pentagon. So a uh, number of different questions I have. Jumping back a little bit, how did that shape you? You mentioned you spent 15 years in sort of active war zones or sort of post-conflict. How did that shape your view of the world? I can't, I can't imagine. I've not spent any time in those situations. I emerged from, you know, not to harp on empathy, but I emerged from those experiences with a great deal more empathy than when I was 22 years old. Okay. I joined the Marine Corps as an officer. I went to Duke University, which is an expensive private school. So my bubble that I grew out of, kind of white, Catholic, New York, upper middle class environment, and then immediately go to a fairly elite school and then go into the Marine Corps, I hadn't pierced that bubble, right? So you still carry, speaking to your point about parenting, probably into your mid-20s, you carry along the beliefs and the ideology and everything of your family, of your parents. Some people never leave the town. They go right back to the town they grew up in. And my observation is maybe they don't ever challenge those. When I went out overseas in the Marine Corps or I served and you enter the Marine Corps thinking everybody wants to be a Marine, everybody wants to serve their country. A lot of times it's an 18 or 19 year old who just doesn't have options. And Mm -hmm. the Marine recruiter gets to them and promises them something when no one else is promising them much of anything. Mm -hmm. And when they come in, they do great things in the Marine Corps, right? So they do serve and there's a great, it's a great brand. And also there's a great thing with developing young men and women. But that's it. So taking away from it was probably a, a much greater degree of empathy because you're, you're really confronted with the realities of the world that I had never encountered. I read about them in National Geographic or on the New York Times. Or, but to be confronted with it, it really forces you to reconsider a lot of things and, and the foundation of your beliefs sometimes. So you mentioned you did your master's in public administration at Harvard. And is that common for people to, you mentioned that you said you resign their commission and then go back in. Is that common? No, it's very unusual. Okay. And yeah, okay. to, be, to be at that position, I got out because I just said, oh, I want to go to the Kennedy School and I resigned my commission. If you, res- if you have a commission and it's a, what they call a regular commission, you're almost guaranteed a 20-year stable, if you consider the Marine Corps stable, but you, you know, a 20-year 20, a 20 job. So it was really a coveted thing. So for me to actually resign it was unusual. But the opportunity to go to the Kennedy School, which was one of the greatest experiences I've had, was just too much to, to walk away from. And so I went to the Kennedy School, focused on national security, which was interesting to me, international security. My thesis there was actually on religious militant groups. This is pre-9-11. We were looking at 
how do religious militant groups, how do they raise money? How do they indoctrinate and get kids at that time, Hamas? How do you, how do you get someone to go suicide bombing, the Tamil Tigers? That was what I looked at. And then when I went back to the Pentagon, this was just before 9-11. I left the Pentagon September 10th, 2001. That was my last day. Oh, wow. So going back there, if you go to right before 9-11, what was an international security? What were they worried about? They were worried about a nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. They were worried about what they're still worried about now, which is you know the South China Sea, which is a near, I'm sure you're very familiar with, yeah. based on, and then 9-11 hit. And so, but there were people who were looking at Al-Qaeda well before 9-11 hit. How do you do that type of research when you're writing a thesis on something like that? It's not like when you study education and you go and read a few journals, right? Like, where are you gathering data? I went, I actually spoke to what I'll call terrorists, or I spoke Mm -hmm. to, so my teacher there was a woman, Jessica Stern, who was great, and she was working on a book called Terror in the Name of God, and she said, can you call these people? I said, Sure. So I called them and then I actually found a group in Muldrow, Oklahoma, because we weren't just looking at international terrorism, we were looking at domestic terrorism. So I found a compound in Muldrow, Oklahoma, where Timothy McVeigh spent time just before he blew up the Murr building. And there were some other unsavory. So I called them and I said, hey, can I come down and spend a week on your compound? And they said yes. So I went and interviewed neo-Nazis, white separatists, spent a week there, and that provided some of the foundation of kind of my research as well. So my next question is, Dumb, when, are you yeah. writing a, when are you writing a book? I mean, tell me about that experience. I mean, that is incredibly unusual to be able to have that type of access. And do you just call them up and say, hey, I'm Ted, I'm like doing my master's at Harvard, I'd like to come down and speak with you? Yeah, I mean, so this is the interesting thing. The leaders of religious militant terrorists, depends on, on where you're standing, the leaders of these groups think of themselves as rational players. They desperately want to be taken seriously. Okay. They're not taken seriously. So they're seduced a bit when somebody calls with the Harvard credentials and said, hey, I'm with the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard. I'd like to come down and speak to you about your leadership style and about your movement, your organization. They're seduced, right? So they, they said, yeah, please come down. And I flew down into you know, Oklahoma, drove to the middle of nowhere. And this compound is out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. And as I entered the compound and I'm driving this long kind of dirt road, you know, I passed the neo-Nazi camp where they were renting them a piece of their compound, you know, in order, you know, it was bizarre. And at the same time, it was shocking when you go in there and you can understand how some of the same, I hate to say it, young men or women who are 18 and don't have options, the same recruiter who recruits them for the Marine Corps, they're just open. They just want to belong to something. They just want to, and they get indoctrinated. And it's scary, but it's a problematic reality. And you're just sort of interviewing, just asking a whole series of questions. And do they find that threatening at all or that they're just happy to share? I was interesting because I went out to their shooting range and I shot with them and I went, they had a, you know, they were basically, they did lumber and I was cutting wood with them and just, you know, so it was just chatting to them. I wasn't standing there with it and, you know, writing down everything as they were saying it. 
I did at the end of the day, obviously take notes. And then I, I checked with them to confirm you still want to be fair and you still want to, yeah. regardless of what I believe them to be, your understanding of them is only valid if you go in there as much as possible without, you know, a judgment. That was the last place Timothy McVeigh kind of did his, his state and, and then he blew up the Murr building. So they've been watched and surveilled. They probably thought I was FBI or something. I, I wasn't. Okay. I was just a, yeah. dumb, a dumb graduate student. <laughs> Trying to make your way through, Didn't like, know through better, Harvard. Right? Yeah. yeah. You were at the Pentagon, and then what happens after that? Is that when you joined the United Nations? Yeah, so I left the Pentagon on September 10th, 2001. I drove up to New York, and I was staying in Park Slope, which if you know oh. New York, Park Slope is directly across from the World Trade Center. I was flying, supposed to fly to Riga, Latvia that day, because I was going to a contract to advise the Latvian Ministry of Defense. This was post- fall of the Soviet Union. This was the peace yeah. dividend. And ironically, given what's going on in Ukraine right now, Latvia, they were all desperate to get into NATO because they had suffered, yeah. in their view, the occupation of, of the Soviets forever. So my flight did not take off. I, was, uh, I went up to the roof. And if you know Brooklyn, there's these brownstones. So I climbed up the fire escape and was sipping a cup of coffee, looking at the New York City skyline went down the fire escape to go in and get another cup of coffee. And in the time that happened, CNN was immediately showing that a plane had flown in and then proceeded to spend the rest of that day on the roof. And then my good friend was a New York City police officer. He called me and he says, hey, do you want to go into Ground Zero and help dig? So I got on a bus with a bunch of cops out of the 84th precinct in New York, and we drove into Ground Zero September 12th to the pit. So obviously my flight never took off to Riga, Latvia. In the meantime, I received a call from a guy who would become my future business partner, a guy, Mike Sheehan, who had just left. He was the ambassador at large for counterterrorism. He had gone to the United Nations and he says, hey, I need someone in central Congo to help with the mission. And I said, okay, <laughs> that's about as much. So I, I then ended up October 2nd, 2001, a month later, I, I landed in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And again, when you're writing your book, but I mean, you've just served at the Pentagon. You have friends there. You have colleagues there. You move up to New York. The, everything that like unfolds on 9-11 is just incredibly tragic. And then suddenly you're there at Ground Zero the next day. Like, How are you processing all of that? I just can't imagine. My greatest, not my greatest memory, but the thing that stuck with me is, is on 9-11 or 9-12 when I went in, New York City is just lit up with these mobile lighting units. So it's a bit eerie and it's pitch dark and we're kind of walking in because there's no vehicles that are allowed within this perimeter. And when you access the heap, when you accessed where the buildings collapse, you actually walk through the remains of some of the buildings that were off to the side. So I'll never forget walking in and as we walked in, we walked through what was a gym. It was the entrance way for a corporate gym or something. And there were all these ID cards that I guess when you go into the gym, you put the ID card up and then you pick it up. So I, I still remember all of the ID cards up on the wall. Wow. You know, and you just, I, you always wonder who was there, who got out, what happened. And having grown up in New York and gone, just taken the World Trade Center for granted, right? It was just always part of the skyline. It was really shocking to watch them implode. It was a horrible, horrible time. 
And you've just gone through all of this, uh, I guess, sort of education at Harvard, learning about sort of about terrorist organizations, how they're funded. You've then worked at the Pentagon. Then you've gone, you know, you're there on the day, you're there in the aftermath. And then how did you choose that the Congo and, and working there was like the place for you? I mean, I imagine you had other options and different things that you could do. How did you end up there? One, I had a great deal of respect for Mike Sheehan, who was, again, mm-hmm. he was the Assistant Secretary General for Office of Missions Peacekeeping. I had a great deal of respect for him. I wanted to work with him. And the funny story is, post 9-11, he's in New York. Everyone's kind of shaken. I went to meet Mike, and it was the elevator speech you always hear about, right? You get two minutes on the elevator with the ambassador. So I got on the elevator with him, and he says, so you want to come work for me? I said, absolutely. And I'm thinking I'm going to get a job in the United Nations building in New York, right? I'll have a great gig. I'll be able to stay in the area where I grew up. And on the elevator, he looked at me and he says, do you want to go to Asmara or the Congo? I said, sorry. He says, Asmara or the Congo. Honestly, I didn't know where Asmara was at the time. And the Congo, I was like, I don't know. That sounds cool. So I said, I'll go to the Congo. I wish I could tell you there was more thought put into it. It sounded exciting. It sounded interesting. And it was. And it was a formative, another formative kind of couple of years in my life. What was that like? You were a Marine. You're working for this large organization. And then you leave that and then you start to work for another sort of large organization in the United Nations. I've never met anyone who's worked for both. What was that transition like? Most large organizations operate the same way. So I I would tell you, I was Though I'd like to think as a Marine Corps, not as a bureaucracy, it it prepared me for operating another bureaucracy. The thing that I tell my kids is paper, you can move organizations if you can write. So the ability Mm. to write tersely cogent kind of memos, I was able to move stuff and get things done that other people who were perhaps more competent or even more senior couldn't because they couldn't articulate. My experience of going, most people in the United States seem to have a especially growing up in New York, uh, complain about the United Nations. The United Nations is horrible. There are overpaid bureaucrats, and it is a bloated organization that has corruption, like all. At the same time, I will tell you that if the United Nations wasn't sitting in the middle of the Congo when I was there, you would have either seen one or another ethnic groups, for example, in Bunya, which is just on the Ugandan border. They probably would have wiped one or the other out, right? There would have been clear ethnic cleansing. The United Nations, the tough part, you know, the Marine Corps goes in when the U.S. has a strategic national interest. We decide we Mm -hmm. have an interest and we're willing to commit blood and treasure. That's why you go to war. Well, that's the support of war. The United Nations is interesting because it's controlled by the five permanent members of the Security Council. And United Nations peacekeeping missions happen when you got to do something but there's really not a strategic national interest any of the permanent five members, right? So you're going to get a bunch of other militaries to go there. And what they really do is they create a holding environment. Mm-hmm. And the question comes down, if the United Nations wasn't sitting in the DRC for 10 years with a bloated mission and some degree of corrupt, you would have seen genocide on the scale that you probably saw in Rwanda. Okay. Wow. You got to do something and the permanent five aren't going to waste their blood and treasure on it. So we outsource it.
What's it like being in a place where there's so many troops, but from such a diverse range of countries? The interesting thing is with peacekeeping missions, we arrive, and when I say we, it's a group of civilians from a host of different places. When I arrived in Kisangani, which is in central Congo, I was there unarmed as a civilian. I arrived with an Israeli. We had a guy from Canada. We had people from Cameroon, but we're all civilians. And the interesting thing is we land on an Aleutian 76 aircraft from the former Soviet Union. And we're there to negotiate with the rebels and we're there to find places so that we can create a place where they can fly these troops in <laughs> to the Congo. So wow, it's really bizarre. You've got civilians going in there and paving the way for the troop contributing countries because, again, they're not expeditionary in nature, meaning they don't parachute in. They don't fly in and have the ability to self-sustain logistically, right? I think Napoleon said, Amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. And ironically, <laughs> he learned that the hard way marching on Moscow. So really, we have to set up the logistics and infrastructure and negotiate with multiple rebel groups before we can bring in the armed peacekeepers. Operating with all those different countries, a great learning opportunity, a great, especially as an American, to go in there and understand what's it like not to, quite frankly, be a hegemon. What's it like not to have the luxury of being an island and not really having to think about what our neighbors are doing? I mean, we think about Canada and Mexico. The rest of the world in Western Europe, or certainly in Central and West Africa, they are deeply concerned about what their neighbors are doing every day. It's an interesting thing to think about because coming from Australia, where essentially you're a massive island, and yes, you do think about what's happening in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and things and further north in, in China. But essentially, you know that you're going to see, see it coming if, if something does happen. And you talked about learning. So what did you learn? I mean, it must have been a thousand different things, but during your time being in the United Nations. I'll break it into adaptive learning and technical learning. Mm -hmm. In terms of technical learning, the challenges and the problem solving required in there you learn how to really plan large projects. You learn how to manage the movement of large amounts of equipment. You learn to be really creative. We had to move 5,000 metric tons of Pakistani equipment from Mombasa port in Kenya to northern Aturi province in Congo. And the way we did it is we flew to Mombasa, Kenya. We rented a car and we drove from Mombasa, Kenya to Lake Victoria and Uganda and then drove up north and figured out, wow, we can cut up a barge on Lake Victoria, transport it up to northern Aturi and move the equipment, build roads. It was really fascinating. So there was a great learning in terms of how do you manage really large projects across expansive territories. In terms of adaptive learning, clearly you have to learn how to move a bureaucracy. And the UN, regardless of being a peacekeeping mission, it's a huge bureaucracy made up of 194 member states, all with different cultural constructs and all with different reasons for being there. So getting these multidisciplinary and multicultural working units to actually achieve what we need to achieve, that was a great learning experience. That's amazing. I like the way you broke that down. So tactical and adaptive learning. And then after that, you founded the Lexington Security Group. How did this come about and what services did your company provide? 
I was in Liberia and we were trying, I was doing a project because they were trying to get 17,000 peacekeepers out of Liberia after the elections had happened. And I got a call from my former, I got a call from Mike Sheehan, who had been my point of contact in the UN. He had left the UN, had subsequently gone to be the deputy commissioner for counterterrorism at the NYPD. And he was getting out and starting his own consultancy. So he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm in Liberia trying to organize a withdrawal. He says, come to New York. So I went to New York and there we planted the seed of the Lexington Group. Lexington Group, initially we were in New York and we were helping advise a lot of the investment banks on resiliency, right? They had all suffered 9-11. They had seen what had happened. They were trying to figure out how do we have a resilient system? How do we create security? How do we build buildings? Goldman Sachs was building a building and they said, well, how do you deal with blast protection? People were really on edge. And what year was this? At the end of 2006, business wasn't going great. I was living in Tampa, Florida and flying, commuting up to New York. And I got a call in January 2007. My partner, Mike, said, hey, you want to go to the Emirates? I said, sure, Abu Dhabi. I went to Abu Dhabi with a carry-on bag in January 2007 and just never really left. Stayed there for 13 years and built what became the Lexington Group. And we, I guess the way we did, we exported defense services, which is a nice way of saying we provided training and, and operational support to military and paramilitary units in the Middle East. We did some U.S. government counterinsurgency projects in Afghanistan. We did some advisory work in the Horn of Africa. So everywhere from Somalia, we were in Uganda, a handful of places there. And predominantly, we were based out of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates. So did a lot of work with the Emiratis, and we built a counterterrorism unit. We built a police air wing that was capable. We essentially, we built a lot of units from the ground up. We advised them on how they needed to structure that organization, and then we helped them build it. So when you say you're helping someone with counterterrorism, what does that mean? Counterterrorism, let's see, that's an interesting term. Counterterrorism really is intelligence. Counterterrorism is understanding what an adversary is planning to do, understanding their motivations, and interdicting what they do before it happens, right? And the way you do that is with intelligence. When people use counterterrorism units, they kind of use it, I would say, as a broad term that that's not necessarily absolutely correct. So a counterterrorism unit it's normally it's a direct action or a SWAT unit in New York. They have the emergency services unit. This is a unit that can do traditional law enforcement in some respects. That would be a hostage rescue, a barricaded suspect. You're serving a warrant on someone who doesn't want to go back to prison. So they actually do a lot more training and shooting. They do a lot more investment in equipment and specialized equipment. And so when we built a counterterrorism force, what we're really doing is we're creating a unit that can respond during or immediately following an incident. But to my original point, really good counterterrorism is done with intelligence and with understanding what your adversary is doing. So you were in the UAE from 2007 to 2019. I was tired. <laughs> it was a lot, a lot. We built the company over there. It was a lot of work. 
the kids were getting older and we knew we wanted to raise them in the United States. I mean, as they, as they were less portable, you know, little kids are really portable and you can move them around. So that, that was part of it. We had actually bought a house. We owned a house here since 2013. We would come here every summer. So it was familiar. I'm from New York, but desperately did not want to move back to New York as much as I love it. And Corrine is from just outside of Montreal. We didn't want to move back to Canada at that time. So here we are. Again, I wish there was more thought to put into it. It's a beautiful view. Great, great area. We just kind of ended up here. And how did you first start coming to the Lake Norman area? Did you have friends down here? Whenever the summer rolled around, it is incredibly hot in the Middle East during the summer. So we would always take a month and fly back with the kids and family. And then we would meet our families, friends. It was, it was kind of a, an annual trip to, to reconnect. We love lake regions. So we would always rent a house on a lake. We rented up at Lake Winnipesaukee. We rented uh, all over. And we rented on Lake Norman one summer. My sister lives in Matthews. I went to Duke undergrad, so I kind of knew North Carolina. So we rented a place here, and we used to go house hunting kind of a sport. And we ended up buying a house here and thrilled that we did. But I left back to the UAE, really. <laughs> what have I just done? I bought a house, and I have no plans to come back to the U.S., but this is, this is again, the, the lack of thought and how we just ended up here. What brought you back to the United States? We rolled right into a pandemic, right? So we, we arrived back in June of 2019. It was great, though. So, you know, we went to Washington, D.C. We drove up to the mountains. We did all of the stuff that the kids hadn't done. We indoctrinated them into America, right? So <laughs> we did all that. And then in March of, of 2020, 20, everything shut down. So I homeschooled the kids for a year and a half. So that kept me quite busy and which was really pleasant. I, I, I had a great time doing it. So that, what have we done? That's what we've done since we've been back. My wife, on the other hand, came back here and opened a superfood cafe right in the middle of the pandemic. So I've been putting my advanced degree to work making smoothies and bowls for, uh, for the last 18 months because, as everyone knows, unemployment's about 3.9% and it is incredibly difficult to find staff uh, at these locations. Why superfoods? Why choose that? So we were over in Abu Dhabi and we were talking, Korean was interested in doing something and uh, looking at franchises, and I said, whatever you do, do not do anything in the food service industry. It is, just don't do it. Subsequently, she had hired a consultant who found a handful. One of them was this Vitality Bowl Superfood Cafe. It looked intriguing. The numbers looked good. I flew from Abu Dhabi to Walnut Creek, California, to kind of meet with the owners and do our due diligence. And when we got out there, I thought it was a great concept. I thought the, the business model was great. So I, <laughs> I bought three licenses on her behalf <laughs> instead of just one. So that was how we ended up on it. It was really, of anything, it was looking at something that was a good business model. Then comes COVID. But we're coming out of it. We're doing great now. But <laughs> opening up a, a restaurant in July of 2020 <laughs> may be more difficult than navigating the Congo.
So now we're going to move to our rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask you a series of questions just to conclude our conversation. The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Interestingly enough, in two days, March 4th was when he completed it. He won the Pulitzer. It was his comeback. So yeah, The Old Man and the Sea. If, if you're talking fiction. If you're talking nonfiction, I would recommend anything by Christopher Hitchens, who is one of the most brilliant polemicists. He's passed away, but was just his writings incredible. What is something you wish you'd known in your 20s? I wish I had known in my 20s that it's more important to be sure of who you are and have a good sense of self than it is to have a good plan as to how you're going to get to where you're going. Great answer. And what are some things you love doing in your free time? I've got all my kids actively like four days a week in music programs, piano, guitar, drums, because I love to play music. And I finally, the kids are old enough that we're able to jam at home. So we do a lot of music at the house. I love playing piano, exercise. When you've got three kids, I mean, what do you enjoy doing in your free time? I like to sleep. I like a good glass of wine or two. So yeah, what, what do you do in your free time? What's that? How did you get into music? So I started taking piano when I was six, and then I took saxophone for a bit. I had just always loved it, and then subsequently just kept buying instruments and kind of teaching myself. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I would say actively listening, and that sounds somewhat trite, but I would put a little context to it. When you work in environments where English may be the common language, but it's not the indigenous language or it's not the language where your client or your colleagues are working, you really have to become good at two things. One, you need to really simplify and not dumb down, but simplify and speak your English almost staccato, right? Because you need to respect the fact that they're respecting the fact that my Arabic wasn't that great initially. So the second thing is you have to really listen and you have to learn how to genuinely care about understanding what someone is talking about when you're working across languages, because the nuance of language, even in the United States across different cities. So a long way of kind of saying it, I've become a much better listener in my late 40s and 50s. And that's something that would serve every young person a lot better. What advice would you give someone wanting to lead an extraordinary life? I'll use myself and my kids as data in this. Obviously, I'm trying to build kids or, or help my children along so that they have lots of options. And it changes at different stages in your life. I would say between the age of 10 and the age of 20, you need to read as much as you possibly can, and you need to master the skill of writing. Because when you're in your 20s and you join any new organization, it doesn't matter which organization you join, you're going to bring very little to the table, and you need to recognize that. But if you are able to have a broad cross-section of reading, and really, I mean, a deep reading, fiction, nonfiction, and you understand how people think and how people engage, and you're able to write in tersely cogent prose, you can get people's attention. You can't, in your 20s, you cannot move an organization with a 20-page paper. In your 20s, you can move your organization 
if you're able to write a one-page paper and get it in the hands of someone who's got the actual formal authority and informal authority in the organization. So learn to read, learn to write well. It's going to open doors for you in your 20s. And once you get beyond that, it's a matter of just being completely honest in all of your dealings. Some of it is these broad, if you're honest and you don't burn bridges and you're conscious of what you're doing and you recognize that everything you do has an impact on others, you're going to have a lot more options and opportunities. So learn to read and write really well in, your, in, in between 10 and 20, and then be really honest and work your ass off, excuse me, when you move forward. That's going to give you the network. And the one that I love, it's trite as well, but you think about it, what's your brand? So think about what your brand is. And not just because when you sell yourself, because you want to be a good product. And finally, what inspires you? What inspires me? I find having traveled around the world, and as we talked about with empathy, I'm really inspired by, for example, the resistance I see in Ukraine. I'm inspired by the resilience, as I said, when I spent time in Central and West Africa, people who had had the very worst of colonialism and war and plague and you name it. And I'm inspired by people who go through that and they don't let those events be their teacher, meaning they still continue on with life. I'll use an anecdote. If you look at what took place in the United States during the 1960s and the civil rights movement, you had issues where people had had really the worst things thrown at them in terms of segregation, Jim Crow laws, racism, and they refused to let that necessarily be their teacher. And it manifested itself in the civil rights and, and, and the voting rights of 64 and 65. That's inspirational. I haven't had hardship thrown at me. Any hardship I've had thrown at me, it's because I've chosen to put myself into that hardship, right? As I think I've led an interesting life, I don't necessarily feel that my life should inspire anyone. It might inspire you to work hard, learn to read and write. But I think the inspiration can really be found in people who have true hardship, war, plague, whatever it may be thrown at them, and the resilience, their resilience, and the way they respond to it. Do they respond to it with hope and respond to it with the opportunity to move their society, their country, their family, what it is forward? Or do they respond in kind, and that's their teacher for the rest of their life? Beautifully said. Well, Ted, this has been amazing. I've really appreciated all the time you've given me to record this episode. I'm sure people will absolutely love listening to it as much as I've enjoyed recording it with you. Thanks so much for all your time. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.